Well, we're, we're jumping into uh, the Advent season here, and on the very first page of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, um, the first Christmas story that's told, gets started in a rather unusual way. It, it starts with a genealogy, um, this this long list of names that's here in the back behind me uh, that charts generations of Jesus' family history. That's what a genealogy is, a, a family tree. And I, I find it fascinating that Matthew chose to start out telling the story of Jesus' life and his ministry with a, with a family tree, right? It's not how I would have started out telling that story, um, but, but for a guy like Matthew who wrote this gospel, there is, there's no such thing as a short story. I don't know if you have any Matthews in your life like that. It's that person you call up and say, hey, I got a quick question for you. Do you have 30 seconds? And you know that there's no such thing as a quick answer, right? So you got to sit down and kind of just get comfortable because it's going to take a while. Whatever question you ask, it has to be put in context and set up and framed and all the different factors have to be laid out before you get actually to answering the question you asked. Um, thank God for the Matthews in our lives, right? Those who, who care about being thorough, not just being concise. And, and that's, that's how this Christmas story is told in, in this book. And, and it's, it's really, it's one of those passages when you come to, at least for me, the temptation is to kind of flip the page. You know, let's get to the, let's get to the good stuff, um, not this list of names. Uh, but, but what I found is that there's some treasures here in, in Jesus' family tree. This, this genealogy lays out this unfolding story of redemption, and it reminds us that it didn't start in a, in a, in a manger in Bethlehem, um, it didn't start when Jesus was born. It started way, way back before. It started all the way back with, with Abraham. That's where, that's where Matthew kicks things off. Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, if you're familiar with that Sunday school tune. But it's this, um, it's this reminder that as he's charting out these individual names, uh, throughout the course of history, and he keeps on connecting them one after the other, building it like a Lego house until finally he arrives at Jesus, at, at Christmas. And, and each name, it, it, it actually, you know, it, it represents a real person um, with a real story, and, and some of these stories get told in Scripture. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is take a look at some of the branches on Jesus' family tree. Um, it's kind of an unconventional Christmas series, but we're going to start this morning with a very unconventional one, a very complicated story. It's the story of, of a guy named Judah and a gal named Tamar. And it's a story of brokenness and redemption, and it's a reminder for all of us. And some of you may need to hear that this morning, that no matter how far away you've drifted from God, that you're never beyond his reach. You've not gone too far. And so this story is told in Genesis chapter 38. 
And I have to say, it's a long story. And so um, I'm going to try to break it down and kind of consolidate it as best I can. And uh, I've kind of laid it out into three different chapters. And for those of you who know me, it won't come as a surprise to you that I've chosen three different songs to kind of encapsulate um, each of these different chapters. And uh, that may be a good thing, depending on if you share my taste in music from the late 70s to early 80s. Um, there's probably three of you here who do. Um, but regardless, we're going we're gonna to go with it. And, um, and, and the first one is uh, a song by Fleetwood Mac called Go Your Own Way. No, it's not a Christmas tune. None of these are Christmas tunes, but this is not your average Christmas story. And um, this, uh, this is how Judah's story uh, starts out. It says this, that at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named, and named him Onan, and she gave, gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. So, um, so Judah would be the original prodigal child. All right, so just to kind of lay out what's going on here, Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob, to backtrack, was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham. So we're kind of like three branches into this family tree. And uh, you may be recall, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, that um, the Lord made this huge promise to Abraham. He said he would bless him, that he would make a, a great nation out of him, and that through his family line, this Messiah would come, this Savior would come. And, 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 and what we know at this point, but Judah didn't know, was that out of the 12 sons, um, he was the one that God chose to carry that promise forward. Um, Judah at this point had apparently missed the memo because he has left home and taken off to this place called Adullam. Adullam was was actually the royal city of Canaan. And so what's so ironic here is that he's actually returning to the very place the Lord had called his great-grandfather Abraham to leave, to get out of. And so there's this intentional move to go out and to go his own way. And Jacob would have had, I'm sorry, Judah would have had plenty of valid reasons to make such a move. And so again, this is just background to lead up to this, uh, to this scene here. At this point, the only royal thing about Jacob's family line was that their house was an absolute royal mess. It was a total mess. Uh, here's, here's how to sum it up. Jacob had fathered 12 sons by four different women. All of them are living under the same roof. Um, his two wives, Leah and Rachel, they had this bitter rivalry thing going on between them. They're like the original desperate housewives, and, and like things are just bad under this roof. And then add to that, at, at one point, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, she, she, she goes out for a walk, and, and very tragically, she, she gets attacked and she gets violated. And when dad finds out about it, instead of dealing with it, he ignores it. He's like, let's just keep on going on with life and pretend nothing ever happens. And that's kind of his modus operandi. But his two sons, 
can't fathom that dad would do such a thing. And so they go from passive into active mode. They take things into their own hands. And, and it's, it's, it is like something out of a mob movie, actually. They, they retaliate by killing off an entire city of men. So this is, this is the life uh, that Judah was, was, was running away from, and you understand it. Um, after that, okay, so that sounds bad, right? But after that, the oldest son, he starts sleeping with his stepmother. And, and again, Jacob hears about it. He knows it's going on, and he does nothing. He blows the whole thing off. He's, he's too busy doting over his youngest son. This is the one you've heard of. His name was Joseph. Joseph and the coat of many colors. This is, this is his golden child. And so um, Judah and the, the other brothers, they're just sick and tired of, of this preferential treatment that, that Joseph's getting. So they take matters into their own hands again, and they throw Joseph into a pit. They sell him off as a slave. And so that's just a, that's just a snapshot of what the house looked like that, um, that Judah was, was leaving. And so if you think your family has problems, right, put it in context. Jacob's family puts the D in dysfunction. And, and complicated doesn't even begin to describe that, what that family dynamic would have been like. And, and Judah's like, I've had enough. And, he, and so that's what he does. He goes his own way. He goes into this epicenter of godlessness, of decadence and, and depravity. And uh, when he gets to where he wants to go, he befriends this man. His name is Hira. And then he marries this, um, this wife. Both, of, both his friend and his wife are godless people. He's, he's moved away from God's will, what God wants, to about as far as you could possibly get. He's, he's deliberately disconnected himself from any kind of godly influence. And he's become enmeshed into the culture that God had called his great-grandfather out of. So let me ask you, did you ever want to pull a Judah, right? Did you ever just want to take off and just make a clean break from God, from, from God's people? Because, man, it's a lot of mess, right, that goes along with them. And just go your own way, Go your own way. Call it another lonely day. Go your own way. There's, there's always reasons to do that. If you're looking for them, you will find them. Maybe you've just become disillusioned with the people of God. There's, they're out of order. They're, they're dysfunctional. They're, they're hypocrites. Or maybe it's just the allure, the seduction of what's out there on the other side, the, the hedonistic pursuit of pleasure that looks so attractive, the sex, the parties, the, the glamour, the glitz, and you just don't want to miss out on it. You can go your own way. Go your own way. No more God, no more rules, no more restrictions. That's what Judah did, Judah did and, and Judah, he gets married, he has three sons, and when his oldest son grows up, he he intends to go out and find a wife for him. And that's where Tamar comes onto the scene, and that's where uh, things start going downhill quick. Uh, the walls start tumbling down, and that's the name of the next song for the next chapter. It's the song, again, not a Christmas song. Uh, this one's by John, sometimes called Cougar, Mellencamp, who wrote the song 
uh, tumbling down. And I think that kind of summarizes this next chapter of Judah's life. It says this, Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, but Er was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. So Tamar comes on the scene, and the first thing we see when she enters in is that things start going downhill fast. And, and I will say this, this is, this is not a happy chapter. This, this chapter is filled with brokenness, with, with pain, and, and with bottoming out. And if, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the Scriptures, I will tell you this, that one thing I appreciate about this book is just how honest it is, right? This, this is not a fairy tale. This is not something you read and you say, why is it that everything works out so good for everybody in there? That's not what real life is like. There, there is no sugarcoating the scripture. This is real life, and that's what we see in the Bible, real life. And, and sometimes it's raw because that's sometimes how, how life is. And so the plan for Judah was pretty straightforward. I'm going to find my son a wife. I'm going to get them settled down so they can start a family, carry on the family line here in Canaan. But that's not how things go. His son, it says, was so exceedingly wicked that it says the Lord put him to death. And now, we don't know any additional details. I wish we did. I wish we were told how did that actually happen? Like, did, did God, like, strike him with a lightning bolt? Um, or was it some kind of indirect kind of thing? I think it, it seems to me like it would make more sense that, that um, it was an indirect thing, that his death was the outcome of his actions. Uh, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and eventually those wages get paid. There's no way out. Sometimes it happens sooner, sometimes it happens later, but on the other side of sin, make no mistake, death is always there waiting. And we see it. It's an undeniable reality. It's the the death of an unborn child as a minor inconvenience for the sake of sexual liberation, or the death caused by someone drinking under the influence because they just didn't have the self-control, the death of a friendship, of a marriage, of families that all come as a consequence of, of sin. So this is the point where things go from complicated to even more complicated for Judah. It says this, then then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Tamar at this point is a widow without a child. So back in ancient times, that would pose a significant problem. It not only meant that her husband's lineage would come to an end, but more importantly, in an agrarian society with no social security system or anything like that, children were the only way of having any kind of security. That's who they relied on to provide for each other. 
So, so back in that culture, provision was made through what was called Leverite marriage. Leverite is the Latin word for brother-in-law. And here's how that worked. The surviving widow, right, in this case would have been Tamar, would marry the brother of the deceased husband. That would have been Onan. And their first son would be attributed the status of the inheritance of the brother who died. Now, I know to you and to me, to us today, that sounds absolutely bizarre. It sounds absurd. But it's, it's how things worked in ancient cultures, not just in one culture, but everywhere. And it was in place for the protection of the vulnerable, of the widow, this, of, of Tamar. And so that's what's being presented um, but Judah's second son, Onan, he starts figuring, he starts doing some calculations, and, and he realizes this, that if, if he fathers a son for Tamar, then that son is going to take the place of his dead brother, and when it came time for an inheritance, what would have been split two ways is now going to get split three ways. In other words, I'm going to get less, and he's like, I don't want that. So he refuses to cooperate. And as a result, the Lord it says, takes his life as well. Okay, three sons, two of them are now gone. And Judah goes back, assesses the situation, and he decides, this is Tamar's fault. She's a black widow, right? Everyone she marries ends up dying. It's, this is what you call blame shifting, right? Rather than owning and addressing his own sin and his son's failures, Tamar becomes the scapegoat. And, and she ends up paying the price. So he ends up making a plan to get her out of the way. He says, go back home. Wait until my third son grows up, because that's what he tells her. Now, in his mind, um, he's thinking, I'm just getting her out of the way. That's never going to happen. Goodbye and good riddance. That's, that's what he thinks. And it's something we see oftentimes, right? What's the problem? Problem is my family. I got to get out of there. I'm going to leave them. Problem must be my daughter-in-law. Get rid of her. Take her out of the picture. So long as we can believe in our minds that the problem is out there, then what do we do? We try to change everything and everyone except for ourselves. Instead of dealing with our own stuff. But if you notice that, that doesn't work. It doesn't work because... The problem is we can't get away from ourselves, right? Oftentimes we try to fix internal issues by reshuffling external situations. It's not out there, it's in here. See, Judah is in outright denial. And if you read, you can see that this is, this is God's way of trying to get his attention, of knocking on his door, of telling him to wake up. But at this point, Judah just is not picking up the phone. He's not answering the door. I don't know, if did you ever, did you ever pray that prayer, Lord, whatever it takes for someone in your life? Lord, do whatever it takes to help this loved one that I care so much for to see their need for you, to return to you. Maybe you've prayed that prayer. Maybe, maybe someone's prayed that prayer for you. And it's a scary prayer to pray because many times it takes things going from bad to worse 
to rock bottom, before you wake up, before you come to your senses, before you see that the Lord is just someone you can't, you can't run away from. Sometimes the walls have to come crumbling down for us to get back on track. That's part of what we see in this story. So at this point, Tamar is in a pretty bad place, right? She has, she has no options in front of her. The only thing she can do is go back home and wait, but she's basically stalemated. Um, legally, she's engaged to Judah's youngest son, but she knows they'll never be together, and so she's trapped. She can't find another husband, and she can't marry the man that she's engaged to, and so she's really collateral damage of Judah's sin. She's been used, she's been abused, and now she's just a prisoner in her own home. And so the years go by, and Tamar has had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to think about what could I possibly do to get my life back? And life goes on. Judah's wife dies, and the next time we see him, he is heading to a party with his old pagan buddy, Haram. It says this, he, he went up to Tinma to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. So, so shearing sheep back in the day, that would have been like a, kind of like a trip to Vegas. You know, it was like a scheduled calendar event, and then along with shearing the sheep, there was a whole lot of just partying and hedonistic decadence, and, and Tamar finds out that Judah is on his way there, and she puts in this high-risk plan into place to try to get her life back. So, so by this time, Judah, we're going to find out in just a second, he is turned into a full-fledged pervert. He, he, he must have had a reputation because Tamar knew exactly how to bait him and how to trap him, and that's what she does. Is what it says. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anium, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that though she, now he had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So it's kind of a crazy story, right? Like, this is, this is in your Bible, right? Tamar <laughs> disguises herself as a prostitute, and, and she lays in wait for Judah. And it goes down just like clockwork. He takes the bait. And what's, if, if, you're, if you're a little bit deeper into the Old Testament, what you'll find about this is a great theme you see. It's that... She fooled the fooler, right? There's this long family history of being outwitted. Abraham gets fooled by Jacob. Jacob is fooled by Leah's father. And now Tamar is fooling him and forcing the issue. 
And there's something ironic about that. But, you know, in every story, right, whenever you're reading a book, watching a movie or whatever, right, we're always trying to figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, right? Who am I supposed to cheer for and who am I supposed to jeer? But this story doesn't really work that way because none of them are good. Everyone in this story is like a complete hot mess. So... Um, <laughs> Three months goes by, and, and here's what happens. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she, she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Selah. And he did not sleep with her again. So here's where the walls have all finally come crumbling down, and Judah is forced to come to terms with his stuff. Now, mind you, he's more than ready and willing to burn Tamar for the, what he's caused. But now he's faced with his own immorality, his own irresponsibility, his own hypocrisy. And this time, there's, there's no one to pass the buck off on, right? Now, everyone knows that he is a first-class loser, and he has to admit it. She is more righteous than I, and... I don't know, I, I hear that and I, I think there's some brokenness in that expression. She is more righteous than I. There's, there's at least a hint of humility that's set in that hadn't been there previously. But Judah's life, it collapsed like a house of cards. The walls came tumbling down and, you know, in a way, it seems like a pretty good way to end a story, right? You know, um, Judah the jerk got what was coming to him, right? And Tamar, she finally gets her life back. But that's not the end of the story. There's, there's another chapter um, that's left. And the last chapter, I would summarize it by an old song by the Beatles called Get Back. Um, get back to where you once belonged. And that's what we see happening here and this takes us to the Christmas story, to that genealogy, to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. And then in Genesis 38, it says about um, the birth of, of his son, when it came time for her, meaning Tamar, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hands. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And his name was Perez. Then his brother, who was the, had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zero. And that's an interesting birth uh, story. Um, but this is the point where, where Judah and Tamar's story, this complicated story, it actually collides 
with the Christmas story. Something none of us would ever have expected. Who, who would have expected Judah, this first-class loser, that he would be wrapped up in Jesus' family tree? Right? You know, you and I, we don't get the option of choosing who our parents are, who our ancestors were, but Jesus did. He's God. He's eternal God, and, and he chose to identify with people like Judah and Tamar. Think about that. Something amazing about that. There's something almost scandalous about that, that the sinless son of God, the, the spotless lamb of God, would choose to be associated with flawed, broken people like that. Tamar would never have imagined that she would be woven into the middle of this story of redemption God was writing, that right all the way back in Genesis 3 at the far end of the fall when God talked about the seed of the woman that would eventually crush the head of the serpent and bring salvation and redemption to this fallen planet, that she was going to be a part of that story. She'd give birth to this child who would carry this promise forward to the next generation And she, in effect, was Jesus' great-grandmother times 38. That's that's amazing. But then when you think about it, the more you know about Jesus, the more you realize that it's it's just like him to do that. This This is vintage Jesus even before he's born. And throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he would always identify with people like that. Like the time he went out of his way to reach out to the worst of the worst. Zacchaeus, tax collector, a criminal, crooked, cheated people and stole money. And his life was so fractured and miserable that when he hears that Jesus is coming to town, he actually climbs up into the sycamore tree because he doesn't want to get too close, but he wants to catch a glimpse of this guy who's unlike anyone else. And Jesus stops There's all kinds of people pressing in around him, and he points up to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from your tree. I want to spend time with you. You're you're my kind of people. Or how about that time he caught the woman in the act of of adultery that was brought to him, and, and they say, what should we do with her? And he turns to her accusers, and he says, let him without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the accusers drop their rocks and they walk away until it's just the two of them, Jesus and her, which I believe was the scariest moment of her entire life because she was face to face with he who was without sin, who had every right to pick up any of those rocks and stone her. But what does he say instead? Go and sin no more. What this story shows us is that Jesus didn't only come for sinners, he came from sinners. That's who Jesus came for. It's the only kind of people apart from him there are. And he came to bring broken down people living in a broken down world back to where we belong to reconcile us to God by being the Savior. And in one way or another, this story has a lot more in common with our stories than oftentimes we'd like to, we'd like to come to terms with and admit, right? The details are different, but the storyline 
It's pretty similar. We, we've all turned. We've all gone our own way. We've all blown it big time. We turn away from God. We suffer the consequences of our sin. The, the walls come tumbling down. And even at that point where it ought to be game over, God sent his son Jesus to redeem, to restore, so we can be brought back to where we belong. And that's really what Christmas is all about. And, and sometimes it's not until things have fallen apart completely that they start falling into place. That's why Jesus was born. It took him from the heavenly throne to a tiny manger to a wooden cross where he bore the punishment for our sin, for everything that separates you and me from a holy and loving God so we can be forgiven, so we can be reconciled and made right with God again. It's the story of grace. And it must have changed Judah's life because the next time we see him, you know where he is? He's, he's back home. He's where he belongs. He ends up leading the way for his family as they make their way to Egypt to reunite with their brother, Joseph. God's a great reconciler. And here's the take home. As far as Judah had drifted, he hadn't gone too far. He wasn't beyond God's reach to bring him back. And so as you're looking in the story and you're wondering who's the good guy, who's the hero, it's the Lord. It's always the Lord. That's why Judah and Tamar didn't go down in history as just jerks and temptresses. They, they, they went down in history as Jesus' grandparents. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 is beautiful. Beautiful um, just statement that I think sums up the whole thing. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It sounds pretty hardcore right now, but here's the beautiful part. And that is what some of you were. Not are, but were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You know, every one of us has a story. We, we have a past, and that past doesn't have to define us. It, it doesn't determine our future. It doesn't matter where you came from, what you've done, where you were. What matters is what you've done with Jesus and who you are in him. He's the one who defines us. Jesus came to do what none of us could ever do. And brokenness sometimes just ushers in grace because it's where we stop putting confidence in ourselves, trusting in ourselves, and, and instead putting it in God in him and all that he's done. So no matter how complicated things get, and man, life can get complicated, God is able to sort it out and make something beautiful of it. Let's pray together.